You're listening to audio from Redemption Church of Houston. We are a people who believe that Jesus has invited everyone into his radically inclusive, world-altering way of love. That means that when we gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or in homes throughout the week, you are welcome here. Regardless of your social status, gender, race, sexual orientation, or politics, we want you to fully and actually join, grow, worship, and serve with us. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, Jesus invites you into his radical love just the way you are. And so do we. Good morning. So, who are you? That might be what you're asking me. Who is this guy? I had a few people who were like, wait, are you, you're okay? Are you good? Just had a baby, it's fine. Um, But who are you? Are you your status? Your race? Your sexuality? Are you your role? Are you your job, your career, your standing in society? Are you your politics, your morality? Are you your hobbies, your trauma, your mental health? Who are you? What's your story? Both the story that has brought you here, but also the story that you're living into, the story that you are walking in as you leave this place today, the story that guides you towards whatever tomorrow is going to bring. I think humans are deeply rooted in this idea of story. The stories that we tell ourselves, the stories probably more importantly that we hear, um, shape us, form us. And much of the story that we believe is a story that is in fact imposed on us by abusers, accusers, tempters, family, friends, institutions, politics, news cycles, etc. We are shaped by the stories that we live. Today I want to talk a little bit about stories. As we launch into this, uh, what will be a, a little bit of an undertaking in Ephesians, we're going to spend basically from now through May um, in Ephesians, which sounds like if you are, have been at Redemption for a while, um, you're like, wow, that's new. We usually don't sit in a book for this long. We do it every now and then. Feels like it's time. But also, if you noticed our reading today, it's dense. Our reading this morning in uh, the original language is one single sentence. Uh, depending on your translation, it's like 12 or 14 in English. And so untangling it and really understanding it is going to take a while. We're going to be dealing with things like predestination. We're going to be dealing with things like patriarchy and gender roles. We're going to be dealing with things like sexuality, slavery. And so to rush through this um, and hit highlights felt uh, like it wasn't time for that. To root ourselves in it and somehow listen to it, wrestle with it, be curious about it, felt good. So... um, all cards on the table, I had decided that this is what we were going to be doing. And then as I began studying and and learning more about what this book actually was and what the the letter to the Ephesians is doing, 
um, in and of itself, what I learned is it's actually the exact thing that I'm hoping for our church and for you personally. Ephesians is a letter written to a church to help shape their identity as a community, to help remind them of the story of Jesus and impose that story onto their stories so that they would begin to live out a different story. Because Ephesians, as right, much as you may know or not know about it, is not a theological textbook. Ephesians is a story. And Ephesians is going to demand a certain set of understandings of the cosmos and of you in that story. The letter was written with a historical purpose. So Paul, the author, uh, there's a whole other conversation we could have about whether Paul was the author or not. We'll have some space for questions with all of this, but for now, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. This is a rooted letter and a particular group of people in a particular place and a particular time and is written by a pastor. So the purpose of the story is not to give them some interesting theological tidbits. The purpose of the story is not to like, well, we need to really fix your theology. The purpose of the story is to help them understand who they are as God's people and what they're meant to be doing with their lives. What's interesting about Ephesians is that this letter is written to a group of people that Paul barely knew. That's weird. All of Paul's letters are written to people he knew intimately. It was a group of people that he had firsthand encounters and experiences with. This, however, seems to be a letter that has distance. It was a church that Paul had planted, that he had been away from for a little while, that Paul then is writing back to however long later. To the saints at Ephesus, who are the faithful in Christ Jesus. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to help them reimagine their story. Grace to you. And peace. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a story that's meant to anchor the Ephesians in their identity and in their vocation as God's people. And I'm hopeful that it will do that for us as well. So my goal for us is that whether you're hearing this for... There it is. Hallelujah. <laughs> so, uh, sorry, fun fact, a little peek behind the curtain as you're all staring at whatever's happening behind me with the lights. I fixed the lights this week. And so whatever's breaking with them is breaking because I fixed them, okay? Um, Brandon, just preach. Quit, quit fixing stuff. We're glad you're back. Um, so my goal is, like, I, I know there are a number of you in this room that are in, having been encountered by Jesus for the first time, like recently. This is all relatively new for you. You're like, the book of Ephesians, don't know what that is. Um, I'm really hopeful that this series will be really good for you, that it will begin to, to transform and help you reimagine who you are as a human being in God's world. I also know there's a number of you in here. This is not your first or second or hundredth rodeo. There's some of you in here who've memorized big chunks of this book, or even, there we go, or even the book itself in full. There's a number of you that have um, studied this, researched this, taught this. There's a number of you that have been walking with Jesus for a very, very long time. And I also know that there's a number of you that are really, really numb right now. 
And I want you to know you are on my heart and I am praying for you and I am with you. I do not want you to hear any sort of shame here. I think a big chunk of our walking with Jesus is walking in darkness, walking in mystery, walking in some form of numbness and silence. But my prayer for you is that the silence, the numbness does not persist. That somehow through this series, there can be a a rekindling of that flame that you perhaps once knew. And so whether it's for the first time or for the first time in a long time, I want us to hear this story together. This morning, we're going to begin our story in difficult waters. It's like, hey, uh, let's preach on Ephesians. It it gives me some structure as I come back out of paternity leave and try and get my head around, okay, so what are we going to preach about first? Let's see, predestination, perfect. Uh, If you don't know what predestination is, predestination is this idea that God has predetermined what's going to happen, right, Uh, depending on your understanding of what predestination is. That's some of what we're going to do today, right? So this idea of do we have any free will or do we not have any free will is kind of all wadded up in this conversation. A short version of the story is nobody knows. Philosophers have argued about this for thousands of years. I'm not going to stand up here and in the next 20 minutes give you some sort of answer that's going to make you go, oh, there it is, the solution to all of the world's problems. Actually, I am. His name is Jesus. But anyways, so we're going to look closely at verses 3 through 6. And then next week, we're going to look at 7 through 14. But this this opening passage, verses 3 through 14, this is uh, a song. It's a poetic form, uh, this giant long sentence is a poetic thing that was most likely used in the early church's worship. And so for us to grapple with some of this language, I think is really important. I also think it's important for us to grapple with the reality that we might be hearing some of this language in ways that it was never intended to be heard. And so let's dive in. Um, My goal here is twofold. First, I want to untangle some of the baggage around this language of election and predestination Uh, look at what Ephesians is actually trying to tell us. And then second, and really the payoff here, is I want us to hear what Ephesians is actually trying to tell us. Which, if we can allow ourselves to really actually hear it, is profoundly foundational to who we are as followers of Jesus. And I I pray will be really life-giving to each one of us. Okay, so Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to dive into verse 3. If you've got a Bible, you want to open it up, you can pull it out on your cell phones. Um, I'm going to be reading out of the NASB 2020. They do something here in a little bit that I will highlight that I really like, but you feel free to choose whichever translation is most understandable to you as they're all good and they've all got their small quirks. So Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So this, this poetic piece, this prayer, is, begins with this, blessed be the God and Father, this grand statement of blessedness, which is kind of weird. When we think about, we kind of get the idea of God blessing us, but when we talk about blessed be God, um, it's the, uh, whatever that show was on Hulu a while back, it's praise be, right? Um, it is, wow, we need to give all glory, all honor, all praise back to God because of what God has done for us. So this is the opening line of some sort of worship text. It's a worship song. It's liturgy. It is tools of reimagining, tools of storytelling, 
tools of helping us see what we're so blinded by Monday through Saturday. And it is not just worship, it is prayer. So much of Ephesians is Paul speaking to God in the presence of the church at Ephesus, which also makes this letter pretty unique. So in their presence, as Paul prays to God on their behalf, the Ephesians learn about who they are and what God has called them to do by hearing this prayer. And so this opening helps us understand um, this pastoral letter as 3 through 14 kind of forms the thesis or the summary of the entire rest of the book. So one little note here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is, this is going to be a Trinitarian prayer. So it's going to begin with God the Father. In verse 7, I believe, it moves to God the Son. And then when you get to verse 12 or 13, it shifts to God the Spirit. And so this would have been a formula that was perhaps performed at baptisms, a formula that they would have used regularly in their worship, and it is distinctly Trinitarian. God the Father has acted through his Son by his Spirit among us. In addition to this, God the Father has done something through our Lord Jesus Christ and has blessed us. Has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, if you are hearing that like I am tempted to hear that, it is going in one ear and out the other. Words have lost all meaning. We get some spiritual stuff and some heavenly stuff, and none of that really matters for the real earthly stuff. But, but what's happening here is we hear heaven and we hear spiritual, and we think like other place. We think, great, I've got some stuff waiting for me in this, this other place in heaven when I die. But that's not at all what Paul is saying. When Paul uses the language of heaven, he's not using the language of a location. He's using the language of a realm. So think about it this way. This is God's kingdom. This is the, the spaces and the locations and the, and the areas where God is exerting his influence in the world. In, in the realm where God has actually worked, you have received everything that God could possibly give you. In the place that it really actually matters, God has held nothing back from you. There is no good thing that God is refusing you. Now the problem is, is when we hear this, we look around and we go, really? Have you seen my credit card bills? (laughs) Do you realize that rent is due and I'm short? Do you not know how my, my kid is acting out? I don't, I'm at my wit's end and I don't know what to do about it. Do you not understand that I'm on the verge of divorce right now? Right, we could go on and on and on and on and on. It doesn't really feel like God has held nothing back from us. And Ephesians is going to address this. Because there are two realms at work in the world, two realities that exist. There's the previous reality, the one of sin and death. And then there's God's inbreaking reality, the heavenly places, the kingdom of God. And that is in this weird overlap that we encounter here together this morning. And so we, in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our doubt, in the midst of our questions, in the midst of our numbness, in the midst of our silence, we are clinging to this reality that God has given you all things and has held nothing back from you. Just hang on. Just hang on. 
So this prayer of praise is one that is blessing God because of what God has done in Christ Jesus, which has given us all good things. And then here we go. Verse four. Why you all bought a ticket to be here this morning. Just as he chose us, uh, that's the language of election, just as he elected us in him before the foundation of the world. So, right, God the Father has chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, before the world was created, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Now, I want to pause because uh, we're going to talk about this a little bit, but I just since we're here in the text, I want you to hear this. What has God chosen you for here? To be holy and blameless. There's no comment here about to go to heaven or to go to hell. There's no comment here about personal salvation. This is a corporate y'all. God has chosen y'all corporately in Christ to be holy and blameless. The election is an election to holiness, to blamelessness, which is, again, uh, it's overly religious language. We're hearing morality. But think sacredness. Right, so I've done several of y'all's weddings in the last couple of months, and you probably, if y'all are doing like the traditional thing, you have a piece of cake in your freezer, a little slice that you pulled aside on your wedding day, and you're going to eat it on your first anniversary um, in a year, which there's some hygienic questions that we have about that, but it's fine. It's fine. But that cake is sacred. It's holy. It's not the... I don't know, Duncan Hines, break and bake, chocolate chip cookies that you're like, I, I don't know, it's been a rough day. I feel like some emotional support cookies tonight. I'm gonna bake some cookies, right? If, if someone were to come into your house and be like, I don't know, what do you gotta eat? And they pull out your cake and they just start eating it. They have like broken something that's sacred. When we hear this language of holiness and, and sacredness, I don't want us to just hear morality. Sure, morality is involved in this. But the reason that morality matters is because morality is profaning the sacred thing. The sacred thing isn't the morality itself. The reason that morality is morality is because it breaks something that's sacred in us or breaks something that's sacred in the one that we're violating in our immorality. But that's another sermon. God has chosen us in Christ to be special. to matter to him. You matter to him. Um, So I told a friend of mine a couple weeks ago, hey, we're going to be going through Ephesians, and I've just started reading through it, um, listening to it on, on audiobooks while I'm doing feedings because that's, like, better than watching some of the stuff I was watching on Hulu. (laughs) And um, when you hear this language, we get, we get it so twisted in how we hear it. So my friend was like, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this too. And so they tried for a couple of days and they like came back to me and were like, yeah, I can't. So they're reading through Ephesians. They're however, I can't do this anymore. Like, what are you, what are you talking about? I just, I, it's making me really angry. 
like, wait, what's making you angry? Ephesians. I'm like, oh, okay, wait, so what? Are you, you must be to like the part where it says like, wives, submit to your husbands or something like that, right? Like, no, 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 I'm in chapter one. I'm like, oh, <laughs> okay, hold on. Oh, so it's the predestination stuff. No, it's not even that. Like, wait, what, what is it? All of this language of like God's will and this is what God wants and like I look at my life and it's a disaster. This is what God wants. And I'm realizing so much of this language has been taught to you and to me and to so many of us in such a contrary way to what it's actually meant to be communicating. And it communicates this cold-hearted, distant God that's going to do what he wants, and you're a pawn in his will, and you're like, I don't know, like it or not, you're going to be put here because that's where God wants you, and you're going to have to deal with it. We get this picture of a God who exerts, exerts power at our expense to get what he wants. And we become collateral damage. We're told to get over it because he's God and we're not. And this becomes a God who authors and then determines bad things to happen in us because, quote unquote, it's just God's plan. My question to you today is, is this how you've come to see God? I wouldn't blame you if it is because there are a lot of religious figures that use hordes of people to get what they want and achieve their own goals and fulfill what they need in the world, build up their own names. And then it doesn't, I mean, it makes sense that we would then say, yeah, God's like that too. Um, that's not what this passage is communicating to us. So some of us have also heard this predestination, predestination language, right? So this is... Uh, Verse 5, in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters through Christ Jesus to himself. So this is the language that I really like. The, the translators here made a choice. So in love is this hanging thing, and it's like, where does in love go? It could go several places. It could go to God chose us in love, which is fine. It could go, we're to be holy and blameless in love, which speaks to like how we're to be holy and blameless. It means we're to be loving people, which is also very, very likely because of like that's how the whole letter plays out. But I think capturing it here is uh, best in love. He predetermined. He predestined. He decided beforehand in love that you and I would be adopted as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ to himself. No mention of heaven or hell. This is about a God who enfolds all people into himself. The God of love who extends the arms of love and embrace of love into a people in order to bring them into love itself. Through Jesus Christ. Right, so I don't know how you've heard this predestination language. My guess is is you've probably heard it something like this. It's a mechanism of salvation. That God has kind of created this system. And I know we've got a lot of engineers in here. Shout out to my NASA crew over there, right? This is a mechanism of salvation that is like, God has put this in motion, almost this deistic, like, hey, here it is. So that's, I don't know. I I decided beforehand, so it is what it is. And we get this picture of a God who is not concerned with us, a God who's not actually concerned with me or my pain, a God who is, maybe even worse, created me in order to torture, torture me for all of eternity, 
And so, right, what I want to acknowledge is that texts like this have been used to assert this theology known as double predestination, that God has decided ahead of time that you are going to be saved and you're going to go to heaven, or, sorry, God has already decided before you were even born, before the creation of the world, that you were going to be condemned to hell where you would be tortured forever and ever and ever and ever, but you deserve it even though God has already decided and there's nothing you can do about it. And then that God is a God of love. Forgive me if I find that pill um, very hard to swallow. Also forgive me if as I'm reading Ephesians, I don't see that here anywhere. What I see is a God who is predetermined ahead of time that we would be adopted as sons and daughters in Christ. As adoption to himself. Okay, so not a mechanism of salvation And this is also not God deciding anything about who is saved and who is not. Right, so the the way that we hear predestination is this is God's choosing you and not choosing you. And yet, this song, this poetic piece is corporal. It is always us and y'all. It is never you. And so the us that has been predestined is the church. It is the community of God. And this tracks with Paul, who was a Jewish person. And if you read the Old Testament and you look at the community that was chosen by God to be a special and sacred nation among the nations, oh, it's the same language. What Paul is doing is not saying, hey, you're in and you're out. Instead, what he's saying is, I know you've heard this story that God has this special and chosen nation. Guess what? You're now it people of God. You are now God's chosen in Christ because Christ is God's chosen. And this way of understanding predestination has led us to using these weird measuring sticks. Are you really saved? Are they really saved? Am I really saved? Um, A friend of mine recently was in a college organization where this idea of predestination was really heavily taught and it led to uh, a mental breakdown where she was living in actual terror of like, I don't even know if God has chosen me or not. Like had, had to like be on medication because of a theology that she was taught. That's broken. That does not communicate the love that is extended through the person of Jesus that Ephesians or the rest of the scriptures is trying to communicate. And so this sort of God begins to start to look and sound a lot like the oppressive, egotistical, religious and political leaders who, for the greater good, which is really just the personal good of the leader themselves, is going to use and cast aside people. But instead, I would argue that this language of election, this language of predestination is deeply relational, is deeply personal, and is a picture of God's pursuit of you even when you had maybe no interest in God. Or God's pursuit of you when you were like, man, I really want God, but I don't know where to even turn, and God is there pursuing you. And so these are not theological tidbits, but pastoral formation. The point of this poetic piece has little to do with interesting theological facts and instead is meant to position us 
to give us the story that matters. The one that helps you and I better understand who we are, that then allows us to go and be what we're supposed to be in the world at large. This story is meant to be giving you a new story. Enmeshed with your own story, with all of its beauty and tragedy, all of its goodness and its evil, it comes in and it writes over that story. It praises a God who has given us an identity and a vocation in the person of Jesus Christ. And this is what worship does. It helps us to reimagine who we are and what we're meant to be doing in the world. Right, so I, I know there are, like, this Redemption Church is a safe place for you to be or to not be with your doubts and your questions and your curiosities. But I will also say this. Something about being here being with the people of God over and over and over and over again does something to you that we so desperately need. It is that remembering, that reminding, that, oh yeah, the world is not actually like this, it's like this, but everything else is trying to convince me otherwise. And so to come back with the people of God, to hear the story of God is really important. And please don't hear, like, this is not a, an attendance thing. Uh, well, you know, you weren't here last Sunday, right? Where were you? Please, if you've been around, you, hopefully you know that that is not who we are. But I am looking. Okay, sorry, just kidding. <laughs> Says the guy who hasn't been here for like two months. <laughs> but y'all, all right. Um, worship is a consistent reframing of what is really true. So I know, I know a lot of us are like really heady, really engineering-minded, really theologically oriented. We want to we talk about like facts and um, can, can you for a moment let down some of that and just open up your chest cavity to worship? And I'm, I'm not pretending that that's an easy thing to do. I think there is something about trying our best to give our emotions to God that God can actually meet us in and do something for us in. Right, worship is also not just singing. It is this, it is giving, it is all, all, the, all the stuff. Okay. All right, I want to wrap up some of this language really quickly, and then I will give us our payoff. So notice the language again, verse four. He chose us in him that we would be holy and blameless, predetermining in Christ that we would be adopted as his children. Election in Christ is not meant to be a rote scheme or plan carried out to the letter. It is relational. It is personal. And it is best depicted in Jesus himself. Jesus is God's chosen. It's literally what Messiah means. It's what Christ means. It's his last name for crying out loud. But I'm bumps. Okay, I thought that would do better than that. Okay, that's fine. I would suggest a better way of understanding election and predestination rather than understanding it in terms of, right, am I chosen, am I not chosen, right? Christ is chosen, and in Christ, anyone who's in Christ is chosen. Because Christ is chosen. 
And Christ, as the Son of God, is giving all things to those who are adopted as sons of God, right? We are sharing in the inheritance of Christ. And so if Christ has been chosen before the foundation of the world to be God's chosen, then those who are in Christ have been chosen before the foundation of the world to be God's chosen, which is, in fact, exactly what I think this text is suggesting. I want to illustrate this for you, because for some of us, that might be a little obtuse. Um, if you have been baptized, and I hope you have, if you haven't, let's talk. We're going to have a baptism coming up really soon. I'm very excited about it. Um, baptism is not just this uh, thing that we do that's kind of like, oh, cool, we checked that box. Neat. Uh, baptism is this moment where we share in Christ. So, so here's the picture. So Christ, at his baptism, Jesus goes down into the waters And as he enters the waters, the Spirit of God descends upon Jesus. And as that happens, the heavens peel back, and the Father speaks out over his Son, this is my beloved in whom I'm well pleased, right? And then Paul says, and in your baptism, you share in Christ's baptism. Which means there is only one baptism. And it's Christ's. So when you enter the waters of baptism, you are entering the waters of Christ's baptism. And the Holy Spirit falls upon you. And the Father peels back the heavens and says over you, you are my beloved. And in you I am well pleased. It is baptism into a new reality, a new way of being, a whole new world. This is what it means to be God's chosen. It's to be in Jesus. This is the story that Ephesians is trying to tell us. I've tried really hard not to say this, but I'm going to say it anyways because it just makes me feel really old. You are not the main character. Uh, The delivery was bad, sorry. It's giving main character vibes, okay? There, I've got them all in there, three of them right there. But it's true. You're not the main character. That's actually the best news ever. So this whole series, we're going to spend um, from now until Easter in the first three chapters, and the, the name of the series is Finding Our Center. And well, my prayer for all of us, regardless of where you're coming from, is that you personally will find your center and that we communally will find our center and we will recognize and realize and experience it is none other than Christ himself. Not the idea of him or the theology about him or words about him, but him. The one who's redeemed us and restores us. The one who was sent by the Father, who was crucified under Pontius Pilate, who was dead, buried, and three days later was resurrected. The one who has sent us his spirit to renew us and bring us back from the dead the one who has promised to come back, return, establish his peace and justice upon the earth and raise the living and the dead. That's our story. That's your story. When you wake up tomorrow and you go to your accounting job or to class or to look for a job or whatever it is, that's what you're living out and that's what you're living into. And all the day long, from Monday to the 
next week when you walk back in here, God the Father is speaking over you, my beloved. I'm well pleased in you. My beloved. I'm well pleased in you. In those moments where you make the best decisions, and in those moments of deep, deep shame that you hope no one ever finds, God the Father is singing over you, my beloved. In you I'm well pleased. So what story are you listening to this week? It's my question for you, and it's not just an obscure question that I'm throwing out there. I really want you to ask, what are the stories you listen to? What are the stories you believe? And what might it actually look like for you to come back to this story over and over and over again and hear it and remember it? Let's pray. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, get coffee with a pastor or visit us on a Sunday, then go to redemptionhou.com. And please know today that you are fully loved and fully accepted just the way you are. We hope to hear from you soon.